Good morning, Christ Bible Church. Good morning. Thank you. Handful. Great to have you here this morning as we gather together to worship God. A special welcome to those of you who join us online. Hi, Mom. Hi, Chris. It's, uh, it's good to join together in this way. My name is Chuck Oldman. I'm a pastor here at Christ Bible Church. It's my privilege this morning to lead us in the study of God's Word. If you uh, were with us last week, we ended uh, chapter 4 of Nehemiah with the wall builders standing in the ready, a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, uh, ready to take whatever came their way or to build the wall uh, as God permitted. Uh, this week, the story will take a slightly different turn. But before we get there, I wanted to take just a few minutes uh, and review some the placement of this story in the overall story of the gospel, the biblical narrative. Understanding the context of a passage is very important to comprehending what it means and then how we should apply it to our lives today. Uh, so briefly at the gospel context, at the historical context, and uh, the geopolitical context as well. There's a little handout you have that uh, should have some of that on. If you don't have them, there should be more in the back. So we'll start out with the gospel context. You know, we all live life according to some story. It's been said that you can't really answer the question, what am I supposed to do until you answer the question that comes before that. You know, what story am I a part of and where are we in that story? The biblical story is the one true story of, uh, of, of the history of mankind, it, of the purposes of God in history and the purpose of God in our lives. So where are we in that story? I think it's helpful to, to think of the, the biblical narrative as a drama with six acts. Act one is creation. God created everything and it was good, actually very good. Act two, mankind rebelled against God. Uh, Act 3 was God promising a redemptive plan for those rebels uh, that then stretched through, actually from Genesis 3 through the book of Malachi. Act 4 was that plan brought to fruition in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Act 5 is the church, that's us, where this, this good news, this gospel, this story is then taken, from, uh, taken to the world. And then Act 6 is the culmination of the story and the return of the king, which we all uh, look forward to. So where does that fit in, in history? Well, I happen to have a chart for that. On the, uh, I know a lot of you are, were wondering, is he going to have a chart? Randy already told you that I do. You know, and for me, this whole context piece, I mean, this is the one chance I'm getting as we work through this to, to preach in the Ezra and Nehemiah uh, cycle here. And uh, so, so I need to convey to you, especially if you haven't been with us this whole thing, it's a good refresher of kind of where we are in the story because this context matters. So here's the, here's the, uh, maybe, here we go. Here's the redemption story. This is just a timeline with some of the significant biblical characters and events kind of laid out chronologically. The point of this is that these things actually happened in history. These aren't stories that, that, that are fable. These, these are historic events that can be linked to things that actually place it on a historical timeline. And today, the, uh, the piece that we're looking at in greater detail is, next slide please, that part. So we're in this like 605 to 400 BC time frame where, uh, where Ezra and Nehemiah, where the return from the southern kingdom is, is uh, all kind of brought together. And next slide, the drilling down into that piece even deeper uh, gives us this. And, and I, there's a lot of stuff in here, and again, that's why I, I know it's probably hard to read, that's why it's a handout for you. But reading top to bottom, Here's a way to think of it. So the exile happened in three waves. It's like a southwest flight from Jerusalem to Babylon. You have three boarding groups, A, B, and C. So the A group was Daniel 
and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those guys in 605, they were exported from Jerusalem to Babylon, and then the next group, and then the next group, and they actually returned uh, via Southwest flight as well, because they came back in three waves, as we've seen. Uh, Zerubbabel led the first one, uh, and they started to build the temple, and then Ezra came back with a group that we've looked at already, and then ne Nehemiah came back with the group that we're in the middle of now. The, the line below that has the, some of the significant events. They built the temple, and that happened over a long period of time. Then they built the wall. I hate to give it away. You'll find out next week. But this took 52 days. That's why it's just a little skinny line on that chart. And then the, the Persian and Babylonian empires underneath that and all the kings. Uh, the, the, uh, the miscellaneous the, after Nebuchadnezzar is because there's like five kings in that time, and I couldn't fit them all in the box. And then uh, the CAMB is Cambyses. I couldn't fit that in either, but he's, the, he's uh, in between uh, Cyrus and Darius. So, uh, and then underneath that are different people that were around during that period, that, and all of them are actually, they wrote books of the Bible, or the books are written about them. So there's eight of them, uh, starting with uh, Habakkuk working the whole way through Malachi. And these people were actually present or participated in these events, and it's all laid out. And so eight books in the Bible uh, are about that time period. And if you count Ezra and Nehemiah, that's 10. Now, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, so over 25% of all of this happened in this time. So this, this, this is, a, to me, it, it matters because this is an important focal point for both the history of Israel and uh, the history of us as well. Next slide, please. So now... Geographically, and we talked about some of this last week, but this is the Persian Empire, all this green stuff here. Think of that as a country, country of Persia. All these bold things like Media, Persia, Babylonia, beyond the river, that should ring a bell because we've heard about beyond the river. Those are like states. They're actually called satrapies, but uh, in the Persian way of doing things, and the leaders of those are called satraps, and that word we've seen in Ezra, and if you look through es Esther, it's there as well. So they're like governors of these places. And this is this beyond the river place. The river they're talking about is this river right here, and that's the Euphrates. So this is the western region, and this is the state of beyond the river of which, uh, next slide please, Judah is a part of that. And I just want to show this slide because last week Randy talked, he preached on uh, chapter 4. In verse 7 there it talks about how uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and people from um, Ashdod and Samaria were all surrounded. This actually shows that that was actually true. So to, uh, Sambalat was the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was likely the governor of Ammon. Uh, Geshen, who you've heard of, is the Arab. This is uh, Arab Adimea, which is to the south. And Ashdod, so, and this is Jerusalem here and Judah there. And so that's where Nehemiah is. He's building the wall in Jerusalem, and all of these bad guys are around him. So, uh, and they are governors like he is, and they are all, I mean, they, they don't really care, I don't think that much about whether or not they worship Yahweh, that's not the, a big deal to them, but what is a big deal is that they are, it's power, it's their, you know, this guy came from the court of the king, from King Artaxerxes, so he has lots of influence, and they want to make sure that he stays in his lane or doesn't take up their power. So... Uh, this, we go through all that, that that's the, uh, this last slide is, I just want to communicate to you why I think this matters so much. So you have all this stuff going on, this is the nexus of, of many, many of these things. And if you look right here, 605 BC, that's when Daniel and everybody, the first group left, boarding group A. 
And this right here is where the Persians defeated the Babylonians and Cyrus's decree happened and they started to send people back. This period here is 67 years, almost 70 years. The prophecy was that in 70 years that the people would re return from exile back to the land of Jerusalem. And that's actually what happened. And so the God that they, that we worship is a faithful, steadfast, loving God. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, written likely by Jeremiah, who was one of these guys and was exiled, eventually ended up down in Egypt, I think. But, um, so, but he's watching uh, Jerusalem probably be burned, the temple and the walls come down while he writes this. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is a faithful God. He moved literally heaven and earth. He, empires changed so that his promise could be found to be true. And it's just, to me, it's just a bold declaration of the great God that we worship. Our covenant God keeps his promise. All right, uh, end of slides, sorry. Um, actually, I'm not sorry. That, 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 I just I think you need to get that with me. So anyway, uh, literary context, we're now, where are we in this book of of uh, Nehemiah, we, with Nehemiah, every chapter so far, he's a leader and a problem solver. So every chapter he solved a problem. Like first, how do I approach the king? And then how do I get people heading in the right direction? And, and uh, today he's gonna solve uh, a problem as well. It's a little different kind of problem. But chapter four, last week we saw uh, external, we saw all those guys we just saw on the map, uh, Tobiah and Samblet and company, who were threatening the, uh, the completion of the wall. And next week, chapter six, we will see more of the same, but in between four and six is five. And five is like the middle of this Oreo cookie where now it's a different kind of problem. Now it's very much an internal problem. And we'll see how, uh, how Nehemiah brings his problem-solving skills and leadership to bear in there because there is dissension in the ranks. So as we dive into the text, let me read it for us together and then we'll pray and then we'll uh, dive in. So this is Nehemiah chapter five, verses one through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were many of those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to, the, sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. 
Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Nehemiah and the example that he is to us. And Father, we pray that as we spend this time, as we dwell together in your, in your precious word, that you would use it to help us see more clearly who you are, that Lord, that you would... Uh, help our minds to see that, but Lord, that you would also move in our hearts. Lord, that you would shape us, that you would shape what we love. Father, more and more we would love what you loved, what you love, and Lord, that you would uh, just do that. That's a work that only you can do, and Lord, we desperately need that, need you to do that in our midst this morning. We just pray that you would do that, and it's in your name we, we pray. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so walking through the text, I want to draw three things out of it, if you would, and then um, answer some questions at the end. So you can look at these and call them three leader lessons, if that's helpful. Uh, First one, first point, leaders must be able to deal with both outside threats and inside threats. Second, leaders must uh, solve problems using compassion, thought, and action. And then lastly, leaders must lead by example. So they must, leaders must deal with inside and outside threats. Leaders must uh, solve problems with compassion, with thought, and with action, and they must lead by example. So first, uh, inside and outside threats. You know, if you look around the world, uh, if you've studied history at all, many empires, countries, governments, uh, they've failed because of external forces. Uh, think war, think natural disaster, uh, things like that. But history is also riddled with peoples and organizations and empires that have rotted and collapsed from the inside. Um, Think the Roman Empire or more recently the Soviet Union. Uh, Leaders must be prepared to deal with issues uh, both inside and outside their uh, their bounds there. And Nehemiah was just one of those leaders. Uh, We have seen him deal expertly with external threats. Even as we ended chapter 4, he and his people standing in the ready. so ready that they didn't even bother to change their clothes because they, they didn't want to uh, uh, get caught with their pants down. I wasn't going to say that, but it did. So, uh, but now we have this warrior leader, uh, Nehemiah, who has to become a labor leader and figure out how to uh, quell the sense in the ranks. And this problem is outlined in the first five verses of chapter 5. Uh, there, this great outcry arose, and it was against the Jewish people, not against the outside forces or Nehemiah, but against the Jewish brethren. Um, the, the, the next three verses, 2, 3, and 4, all identify groups of people who were a part of this, uh, this uprising, this crying out for justice. Uh, the first group in verse 2 were a people without land uh, because... Uh, because of their circumstances, they were un- unable to feed their people. They had big families, so probably the, a conclave of homeschoolers that all had their kids there, and the, they couldn't feed them all. But they, they didn't have land to back them up, so they were, they were literally 
hand to mouth. They were 98% likely of people in this time that in, in these circumstances lived hand to mouth and they couldn't, uh, if, if anything disrupted the supply chain at all, if their life, the rhythm of how they lived, then they were in big trouble. They wouldn't eat. Uh, there's probably lots of factors in here that, that came into play into why this was at this time. First of all, if you remember, Nehemiah had asked them not to go, uh, not to leave Jerusalem, not to go back to their homes, which were uh, in the outskirts there, but to stay there in and help him build the wall. So they weren't able to go home. Uh, also, this was September, October time frame, so it was harvest season. So they not only could they not be at home to help, but they couldn't be at home to to uh, reap what they'd sown. So the, the crops that, that actually would feed them could be in jeopardy as well, which may have played into the famine that he addresses in the next verse. And then there's also the external pressures that we've seen uh, regularly. These are, this is the most at-risk group of these three. Uh, and again, any, any disruption to the no normal rhythms were immediately felt. Uh, group two in verse three were those who had land because they mortgaged their fields in order to buy grain. Uh, not as imminently a threat, but still uh, long-term viability was at risk. And then also at less risk were those in verse four who had borrowed money in order to pay their taxes. So if you think about it, so you have the Persian king, and then you have the, the satraps who run the, the uh, you know, the satrapies, the beyond the river places, the states. Then you also have the provincial governments in the provinces that, and they could all levy taxes. So you got federal, you got state, you got county, you got all this going on. And this put a very heavy tax burden on the people, so they were borrowing money in order to pay for these taxes. And then verse 5 kind of captures all that, if you would, because it kind of lays out the core of their complaint. Now, flesh is as flesh of our brothers. Our children are the same as your children. We're all in this together, but yet you are doing fine, and we're not eating. We're hungry. Uh, and it's not in our power to do anything with this. So there's this descending spiral of indebtedness. Uh, going on here. First, you use your existing funds. When those run out, you borrow money using your land as collateral. Uh, if that, when you run out of that, you borrow money using your children as collateral. Uh, and then you sell yourself into slavery to an Israelite. And then finally, you sell yourself in, in, uh, as an indentured servant to a non-Israelite. And that's what they were doing here in order just to survive. Now, the Mosaic Law, Exodus and Leviticus, kind of laid out the, the process for how this was to work, and it outlawed loaning money at interest to people who were destitute, to people who were poor. So uh, they could take interest from other than Israelites, but from your Israelite brethren, if you were poor, the law forbade you from charging interest. The law also permitted them to use property as collateral, but again, if you were poor, it kind of went into a separate category because if you if, you're, if you gave your cloak as collateral, then they have to, had to give your cloak back to you that evening because that's the only way that you could keep warm. So uh, they, there was active protection in the law to protect the poor. So this is the problem, the internal problem that, uh, that Nehemiah had to deal with. So how to deal with it? Well, leaders must uh, solve problems with compassion, with thought, and with action. And that's what Nehemiah did. Uh, verse 6, he was very angry when he heard this outcry, so his, his initial reaction was very uh, emotional. Uh, he was an engaged leader, as we've seen already. He's, he's out there, his hands were dirty, he had dirt under his fingernails as he helped them build the wall, and he felt their pain. Uh, but he didn't just stop there, he engaged his intellect and said, okay, how can we address this problem? Uh, verse 7, he said he took counsel with himself, so he 
reasoned through the problem, uh, thought it through carefully. He didn't just want to give them dinner to fill their belly for the night. He wanted to find out what was causing this to happen so he could solve the, the root problem, if you would. Um, and then he acted. So he, he, he felt their pain, he thought through the problem, and then he put a plan together and executed it. Um, and his plan was to get all these people together, all the people who had the money and the people who didn't have the money, the people who were starving, the people who had all the land, and put them all in the same room and uh, in the same gathering of people and then to address them together. So it was brilliant. I mean, I think you, this is like the fifth century version of social media. You know, you get everybody out there where you can see their face and at least, or not in social media, but you can at least hear their complaints and everybody sees it all. And as he thought through this, he thought through this from many different angles and he laid out his case to them as he charged them with uh, the, the, he said, you are exacting interest and we shouldn't do that. That was his charge against them. And as he laid that out in the next few verses, he says, he appealed first to their reason. He said, we've gone to great lengths to rescue some of these, some of our brothers who were sold into slavery. We bought them out of slavery and now you're selling them back into slavery. That makes no sense. Why are we doing that? He appealed to their civility. He said, this is not how brothers should be treated. In verse nine, he said, the thing that you are doing is not good. He also appealed to, to the need to align themselves with God's design for community, which is laid out in Leviticus 25, which we'll go to here in a second. But uh, basically in verse 9, he said, you ought, not, ought we not to walk in fear of the Lord? So this, this thing God has done, he's shown us to do, shouldn't we do it? Shouldn't we walk in the fear of the Lord? And then uh, he also appealed to God's reputation amongst the nations, which we've seen Nehemiah do before. That was something that was very important to him. He wanted to prevent the taunts of the nations and their enemies. So as he addressed this problem in this uh, full-orbed way, he also proposed a solution that answered much of this. He said in verse 10, uh, Moreover, I and my brothers are lending money, lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So let us not do this. And as a leader, he took the first step, which was to own the part that he needed to own. So he, he admitted uh, that he himself had done some of these things and he was saying, I'm not going to do these anymore and neither should you. So it's, you know, I think that his culpability was less or at least his engagement was less just based on how strongly he reacted when he heard, uh, when he heard what was going on. In verse 6, he, he was just, I was angry. But, but so I think his involvement was either in the past or was less but he looked at it, and as a leader would, he didn't say, you need to stop doing this. He said, well, you know, we should stop. We should not do this anymore, and we should go forward in this way. Um, and and the, the nobles and the priests, or I'm sorry, the nobles and the, the landed people there, that uh, officials, they said, we will do uh, what you said. And Nehemiah, there's no room for post postponement or second thoughts. He immediately brought the priests in, upgraded this promise to an oath, and sealed the deal. Um, and so then it ends with verse 13 saying he shook out the folds of his garment. The, the picture there, that's a graphic thing that prophets often did. Nehemiah is not a prophet, but he's acting like one, like Elijah did this, Jeremiah did this. And Jesus actually did this when he, uh, uh, when he told the apostles, when you go to all these villages, you go in there and preach the word, and if they, if they don't listen to you, then you know, shake the dust off your sandal on your way out. And that's the same picture we have here with, uh, you know, they didn't have pockets, so they kept stuff in the folds of their robe. And, uh, and the idea was that you'd, you'd shake them such that it would separate them from their stuff. And that's, 
that's what the, how Nehemiah was drawing this to a close. So Nehemiah, the leader, he felt the, he dealt with this internal problem with a compassion response, with uh, intellectual vigor, and with focused action in here. So then how about leading by example? How did he do that? Well, uh, the next section, the next, starting with uh, uh, verse 14, he lays out his case there. And this, this section takes a step back. It's not in the immediate context of verses 1 through 13 that we've just looked at. But he, he's looking more broadly at his whole uh, tenure there as a leader in, in, in Judah. And so let me just read that briefly, and then we'll, we'll touch on some points. So this is uh, verses 14 through 19 of Nehemiah 5. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. But even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah is uh, articulating his position as a servant leader. I'll, I'll just summarize his points here, but uh, basically said, I didn't take advantage of the governor's, you know, I have the authority to levy this tax. I did not do that. Uh, I continued to work on the wall. I didn't acquire any land. I had uh, my servants help with the wall as well. I paid for the feeding of his staff, which was his responsibility as the governor, out of my own pocket. I paid for the feeding of dignitaries, also out of my own pocket. And basically, every perk that his job afforded him, he declined. I'm sure if he had a parking space for his chariot, he would not have parked his chariot there because he just was not that kind of guy. So who does that? I mean, how, how, does, uh, uh, how does someone push all that aside? I'll tell you, it's someone who's living for something else, living for something greater. Um, so then, if that's the kind of guy that Nehemiah was, how, how do we be those, that kind of people? How do we put people ahead of profit? Um, well, I think to help us answer that question, we need to examine just briefly why did uh, Nehemiah act the way that he did. And I think uh, there's some hints to that in verses 14 through 19. Um, I think one reason was because of the awe and respect and love that Nehemiah had for God. Verse 15 said, I did not do so. I did not levy this tax because of fear of the Lord. So he feared God, and that fear, that awe, that love for God caused him to, uh, to not want to hurt other people, which rolls right into the second point, which is because of his love for people. Again, uh, in verse 18, he said he did not demand this food allowance because the service was too heavy on the people. So he loved God, and because of his love for God, he chose not to do that, and because he loved people, he chose to behave that way. Love God, love people. Hmm, that, that sounds vaguely familiar. Um, you know, 
Jesus said on, the, on those two things, on this, those two great commandments, all the law and the prophets depend. So, uh, and for Nehemiah, although not referenced directly in this uh, letter, he is drawing conceptually heavily from the Levitical law dealing with, with people, with property, and with Sabbath rest. Rest from work on the seventh day, the Sabbath, rest from the land, and rest from paying debts on the seventh year, which was their, uh, supposed to be their regular practice, and then rest for the land and the return of the property to its original owner in the seven times 70, or seven times seven years, 49 years plus one. So in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, is when all the property rights were uh, released and that went back to their original owners. Um, and we'll look at that briefly here because that's foundational. You can hear that echoed as, as we look at Leviticus 25 and, and how Nehemiah addressed this. And then also, the same fear of God that Nehemiah had that caused him to behave, uh, the same love he had for God that caused him to behave in this way is anchored in this passage as well. So listen to this uh, passage in Leviticus 25 as God is laying out his heart for how they are to treat their brothers. He says, if your brother becomes poor, this is Leviticus 25, uh, 35 through 43, with just, just reading a couple verses out of there, but he said, if your brother becomes poor and can't maintain himself with you, you shall support him um, as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him. Don't take any profit, but fear your God uh, that your brother may live beside you. And then verse 38, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God is saying, I brought you out of this land. This is my land um, or this is, uh, these are my people, so care for them in this way. If your brother becomes poor beside you and he sells himself to you, you shouldn't make him serve as a slave, but you should, serve, you should have him serve as a hired hand for you. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So that's kind of the behaviors, and you see much of that in how Nehemiah addressed the solution of this internal problem that he was dealing with. But more importantly, there's some underneath pieces to this that, that I think defined his approach and would help us figure out how we can live like this as well. In, in uh, Leviticus 25, verse 23, God, speaking to the Israelites, says this, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So this is God talking to his people saying, this land, you can't sell it forever because it's not yours to sell forever. This land is mine. You and me, we're on this journey together. We are sojourners together in this life. And so the land is mine and, and you can't sell it in perpetuity. And he said something similar in verse 43 where he's talking about his servants, the, the poor people, talking about the ones who they were selling into slavery. But he said, for they, the poor brother, are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. The land is mine, these people are mine. It belongs to me. Uh, he is the redeemer. He is the owner. It was true then, and it's true now. So then, how do we put people ahead of profit? Uh, how do we put human beings ahead of belongings? How do we avoid reacting like the nobles and the officials did in Nehemiah's time? Well, I think we need to start in the same place that Nehemiah did. Uh, these things belong to God and not to us. Uh, some of you are business owners. Um, that's not actually true. 
The business will not be sold in perpetuity, for the business is mine, says the Lord. Same is true for the people who work for you. We are stewards of his things, not owners. Some of you own homes. That's not actually true either. The home will not be sold in perpetuity, for the home is mine, says the Lord. And some of you don't own, some of us don't own businesses, we don't own homes, uh, but we have stuff. And guess what? The stuff will not be sold in perpetuity, for the stuff is mine, says the Lord. All our things, they're not ours, they belong to him. This will look differently as we live it out in our individual contexts, but the underneath piece is the same. He owns it all. So we love God by acknowledging his ownership of all and living as stewards, not owners of the things in this life. And we love others by being extremely generous as God has been to us. And as part of that generosity, we look for ways, as Nehemiah did, to disadvantage ourselves for the good of others. And we have the ultimate example of how that disadvantaging should look, disadvantaging ourselves for the good of others in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said it like this in his letter to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, was, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, that we would live like him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Nehemiah, who displayed these qualities of love for you and love for people, Lord, that we, we want to drive our lives. And Lord, we look at what you did for us out of love on the cross. And Father, we pray that you would move in us, that you would shape our hearts and our affections in ways that cause us to live like that as well. Lord, enlarge our hearts that we might run in the way of your commandments. Amen.